And it is Jesus that makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. We are so glad that you could join us. In today's special Palm Sunday sermon, Pastor Elliot takes us to Matthew 21, 1-17. In this passage, we will see four timeless truths about how persons react to Jesus, and we will also see how best to respond to Jesus by looking at the children who were present for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21, 1-17. And now, Pastor Robert Elliott. You know, some people are hard to love. They're also hard to understand. Sometimes people can be presented with the most obvious facts and still miss the right conclusion. This is Palm Sunday. The verses before us this morning chronicle the Lord Jesus' presentation as Israel's king and his cleansing of the corrupted Jewish temple. As we work through these verses, the challenge for the pulpit and the pew is to see ourselves in the crowd, to see ourselves in the crowd and in the temple of Jerusalem. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the first century human reaction to Christ is not very different from the 21st century human reaction to him. People continue to be people. And since the fall, people are sin-tainted. God's image has not been erased, but God's image has been effaced by our sin. Effaced is the whole idea of putting graffiti on something precious. This morning, we'll be seeing four points and timeless truths about people. One of these truths about people is positive, but three of these truths about humans are negative. Let's begin our study looking at Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1. I'll start by reading the first three verses, Matthew 21, verses 1 to 3. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Our first point this morning is that sometimes people demonstrate great faith in Christ. Sometimes people demonstrate great faith in Christ. These two disciples surely did. I mean, they were ordered by the Lord into a village, which was not their home, and they were ordered to take a donkey and her colt, and these did not belong to them. And then they were commanded to tell the animal's stunned owner simply, the Lord needs them. And off these two disciples went, and they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. That was remarkable faith in Christ. What has Jesus told you to do? Does it seem odd or embarrassing or risky? Do it anyway. As Nike says, just do it. It was the Old Testament prophet Zechariah 
who predicted centuries earlier that the Jewish Messiah would come to Zion riding on the young colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, kings usually rode on horses. Horses are animals associated with war. But King Jesus rode a young donkey, an animal associated with peace. Next, I want us to see in the text, our second point is found in verses 4 to 11. And they read, Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a great beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. What a scene that was. What a scene that was. And that brings us to the second point this morning in this message. And it's this, that this side of heaven, always people are profound paradoxes. Again, this side of heaven, people always are profound paradoxes. This original Palm Sunday crowd was a real paradox. They gave their cloaks to Jesus Christ, but just days later, they demanded a crucifixion that would take Jesus' only cloak away from him. Paradox. They waved their palm branches, which were symbols of Israeli nationalism, but mere hours later, they argued that Jesus was their number one threat to Israeli national security. Paradox. They shouted Hosanna, which means save now, until they changed their minds and hearts to shout crucify, kill now. Paradox. They recognized Christ to be of the royal line of David, the son of David in verse 9, but they came short of recognizing him to be their Messiah, the prophet they called him in verse 11. Paradox. They lined Christ's one-man parade route on mass, but many still didn't really know who he was. Paradox, paradox, paradox. Now, let's go on to our third point today, and it's this. People choose making a profit over praying a petition. People choose making a profit over praying a petition. 
We see that in verses 12 and 13. Follow in your Bibles as I read. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. People choose making profit over praying a petition. Of course, at that time of Jesus' triumphal entry, Jerusalem was swollen with many thousands of Passover pilgrims, and they needed food, and they had needed animals, and they needed birds to sacrifice. And handsome profits were being made, both exchanging the foreign currencies and selling the necessary sacrifice animals. Historians estimate that between 150,000 and 2.5 million pilgrims were in Jerusalem that day. Wow. We can mark it down. It wasn't prayer meetings that were offered at that time. It was money-making commodities or money-making services, which were at the forefront inside of that temple area. Yes, oftentimes people choose making profit over praying a petition. The Lord Jesus was, of course, not impressed. The text reports that he drove out all who were buying and selling. He drove out all who were buying and selling. The text also tells us that he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. End of quote. Ouch. No doubt this was righteous indignation in Christ. Holy anger over his father's house temple being reduced to some kind of a midway at a carnival or a flea market. We need to think about that. It's easy for us to choose making a profit over praying a petition. This brings me to our fourth and our last point today from Matthew 21, verses 1 to 17. The fourth point, people get ugly when their power and influence diminish. People get ugly when their power and influence diminish. I see that in verses 14 through 17 of our text. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Oh, yes, make no mistake, people get ugly when their power and influence diminish in the light of Jesus Christ's power and influence. Oh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were ticked off. At what? 
Jesus clearing out graft from God's temple. Jesus healing the blind and the lame. Young children calling out to Jesus in love and worship. Verse 15 says that the religious sophisticates were indignant. Imagine, indignant over removing greed in sacred places. Why? Indignant over restoring sight and ability to walk. Why? Indignant over kids' public praise of God. Why? Because they were proud. They were corrupt. They were very glad to be superior to other people. And they were jealous. These so-called religious men sensed that their significant power and influence that these things were waning when Jesus came on the scene. These things were slipping away from them when Jesus came on the scene. These things were receding and decreasing when Jesus came on the scene. And they did not like that one little bit. Therefore, they became extremely determined to do away with this upstart Jesus. Now fast forward to 2016. Like the chief priests and the teachers of the Jewish law, we, we can get proud. We can become corrupt. We can see ourselves as being somehow superior to others. And we can get jealous. Human hearts are human hearts in every generation in time. And at the core, people are fallen, depraved, tainted. At the core, without Jesus changing us, we have a me-first outlook. We want to advance ourselves. Let me ask you, is there a remedy to what we have seen in this interesting Palm Sunday passage? Namely, is there a remedy to the paradoxes? Is there a remedy to preferring prophets over prayer? Is there a remedy to craving after personal power and influence? Is there any remedy? I know that there is a remedy. And I see it right in the passage in verses 15 to 17. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Is there a remedy to paradoxes and preferring prophets over prayer and craving personal power and influence? Is there a remedy? Oh, yes, there is. Check out the little children's response to Jesus. Palm Sunday. Check out the little children who witnessed that parade. Those little children, bless them, were praising Jesus with their lips. They may not have had all the understanding to have on his cross work that was coming yet, but nonetheless, they fully entered into publicly praising and loving Jesus. That's marvelous. They may not have been aware of everything, but they wholeheartedly entered into joy over Jesus on a young donkey. 
They may not have been the most educated or sophisticated in the Jewish scriptures or traditions, but they, as children, fulfilled Psalm 8, verse 2, which reads, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast strengthened because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. The children's sincere and innocent response to Jesus put the selfish and the arrogant in their places. You know, we can learn from that. Children aren't as paradoxical as us grown-ups. Children aren't profit-driven to the expense of talking to God. Most children aren't into power and influence over others. This is precisely why our Lord said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus said that recorded in Matthew 19, verse 14. So this Palm Sunday, let's be like children. Let's be loving Jesus. Let's be enjoying Jesus. Let's be calling out to Jesus to be our Savior. Let's be about that. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that there are remedies for our sins. And the remedies are really one remedy, Jesus. Help us this Palm Sunday to worship him, to love him, to trust him, to obey him. We ask these things in his precious name, amen. It's time for the Bible's answers to your questions. We urge you to get a pen or pencil and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always eager to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away, and also here on the show. You can send us your letters via email at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com. Once again, here's Pastor Robert Elliott. I'm delighted this morning to have Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in our radio studio. Jimmy's been with us the last few days in our Prophecy and Missions Conference. Good morning, Jimmy. Good morning, sir. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. I thought it might be beneficial to our listeners if we talked about some prophecy issues that uh, the Lord has helped you study in His Word over many years, and um, I think it'll be great. So, ready to roll? Ready to go. Okay, let's do it. Jimmy, I, I think that Many Bible-believing Christians have some confusion over the rapture return of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you could uh, share a bit about the differences. Well, you know, that is a key question as you try to determine the end-time scenario that is found in God's prophetic word. Recently, I did an international television program with a, a, a television guy named John Ankerberg, and Rennie Showers joined us. Rennie He's an expert in Bible prophecy, an author, prolific author of prophetic books. And one of the reasons John had us on was the same reason you're asking me the question now. That does need to be explained. Many people 
refer to the second coming. When they say that, they clump both the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus Christ back to the earth in that category of the second coming. Now, when you use the term second coming, it is a bit nebulous because in some extent, he is coming out of the heavenlies into the clouds above the earth. He's going to shout and call us up to be with him. And so he will come out of the heavenlies a second time. But when you think about returning to the earth, coming all the way back to the Mount of Olives in the city of Jerusalem, as foretold in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, that means the return of Christ back to the earth. In the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 24 in particular, the whole book of Matthew is talking about the kingdom and an offer of the kingdom to the Jewish people. The first time he came, that's what he came to do. When you get over to Matthew 24, which is the record of the Olivet Discourse, probably the most profound prophetic conference ever held in the history of the world with Jesus Christ as the speaker, as the teacher, he is going to explain and promise that indeed the postponed kingdom uh, that he postponed because of unbelief the Jewish people did not believe either his cousin, John the Baptist, who could have fulfilled, Jesus said in Matthew 11, he could have fulfilled the ministry of Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the return of the Lord back to the earth, the second coming would not take place until Elijah showed up, the prophet Elijah. And in Matthew 11, the Lord said also in uh, Matthew 17, he refers to his John, his cousin, his disciples questioning him about the ministry of John the Baptist, and he said he could have fulfilled that, which would have given indication that the second coming was about to happen, but uh, you did not believe, the Jews didn't believe, they didn't believe me when I came to offer the kingdom. So he postponed that kingdom, and then he makes a promise of the kingdom. He says in verse 29 of Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation period, and that's probably something we ought to discuss in a future program. But immediately after that period of testing on the earth, the Jewish people refer to it as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. Immediately after that, then in verses 30 and 31, Jesus Christ said, I will come in great power and in glory. I will come in the clouds and I will come back to the earth. That's when he comes back to the Mount of Olives. In essence, that is the second coming of Christ. It is the return. Often I'll use the term the return of Christ. And instead of saying the second coming, the return back to the earth. Now that's a promise he made. He postponed the kingdom, but he promised he was coming back. And if you'll remember in Acts chapter 1, as he ascended into the heavenlies, two men in white apparel standing there watching as he went up along with the disciples who had their eyes focused on Jesus Christ. And they said, why stand you here gazing into heaven as he's gone? So he's going to come again 
again one day. Now, that would be the second coming of Jesus Christ. But during that same period of time as the Olivet Discourse, and that would have been on Monday afternoon, and then for the time of Passover, which began at sundown on Wednesday afternoon, Passover would have been a time when he would be with his disciples. He would rehearse the exodus out of Egypt, which the Lord provided for the Jewish people some 3,500 years ago. And because of their anxiety of what they were considering might be a terrible time for them. Remember about six months earlier, he told them in Caesarea Philippi, have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, I'll be buried, but I'll resurrect from the dead. So because of their concern about what was going to happen, he said to them, John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, and in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now listen. And if I go, I shall come again, now here's the key part, and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And so as I mentioned a bit earlier, Jesus Christ will come out of the heavenlies. He comes down above the earth. He shouts the procedure for the rapture found over there in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And Paul basically is going to reveal to them what is actually going to take place during the rapture. And he says, Jesus will shout, the archangel will shout, the trump of God will sound, and we'll be caught up to meet him in the air. That's what he's referring to in John chapter 14. In the upper room, the night before he's going to be crucified, he's not talking about the second coming. This is the first introduction of the rapture of the church. And so now we see the two differences. At the second coming, or the return of Christ, he comes all the way down to the earth. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, tells us that he mounts a white horse. Verse 14 of Revelation 19 says, We as believers in Christ, the body, the church, his bride, we're going to mount white horses and we'll come back to the Mount of Olives. So that's the second coming. Remember the phrase that the Lord used in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation. So that's a period of time. And there are other passages of Scripture that tell us that's a seven-year period of time. So after the tribulation, Jesus Christ comes back. But prior to the tribulation, as he told in John 14, verses 1 to 3, he's going to call us up to meet him in the air. At the return, we come back to the earth, to the Mount of Olives. At the rapture, we're caught up to meet him in the air. And there's a terrible time of judgment in between. Again, Jesus refers to it as the rapture. And so if you're looking, and for example, just look against the wall right now where you may be listening and look from left to right. On the left side, what of what you're looking at would be the rapture of the church. And then you start moving your hand towards the right. On the right side would be the return. And in between those two different events would be the tribulation period. So it's a key question, Pastor, that you've asked. We've got to differentiate between 
the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus Christ. Excellent. Thank you so much, brother. That's very clear and, and very helpful. Uh, why don't we have a word of prayer in light of what this truth is for our lives? Gracious God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all your creation and your prophecy plan is sure and dependable. We thank you that you've spoken to us in your word about the rapture of the church and then about the second coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we anticipate both events, that we be purified, that we would be comforted, that we be encouraged. And Lord, maybe share our faith far and wide so that when the rapture return of the Lord Jesus comes for his church, that as many persons as possible will be redeemed and ready to be airlifted out of here. And we pray this in Jesus, our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 a.m., and coming April 3rd at 8 a.m. in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us at these times. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior. <laughs>